Welcome to this podcast from Field Partner International. This is one of a series of interviews posted on our website and YouTube channel, where we will hear from experienced missionaries sharing stories and insights from their journeys. We are an online community and resource for Christian missionaries working across cultures. You can visit our website, fieldpartner.org, which features free video courses, blogs, podcasts, sermons, and more. Subscribe to this channel, our YouTube channel, or Facebook page to stay updated on our latest resources. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Christine Patterson from Field Partner, and I'm really glad that you can join us today for this interview with Amy Young. Amy is someone that I have followed for a while now. I first came across her when I stumbled across um, a collective blog, I think it's called, called um, A Life Overseas. And uh, she's a contributor there. And then I was, um, rec- her book called Looming Transitions was recommended to me. And I, I used that when I was um, uh, forming a course um, called Crossing Culture 101 for my second module. So I've been grateful for Amy and for all that she has uh, brought to the world for a while. And I'm really, really glad that I can introduce her to you guys, guys now. And um, I look forward to sharing this time with you. Um, welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me. And let me just say, everyone, this is 6.30 in the morning, or it's not now. It's uh, nearly 7 o'clock and it's nearly 9 o'clock for me in the evening in Taiwan. So Amy in Colorado, Christine in Taiwan, welcome to this interview. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm excited to be here and to get to share this time with you and with all of you out there, too. Great. Thank you. Uh, so, Amy. Start at the very beginning. Tell us where you were born, where you were raised, and um, how you came to faith, and uh, anything else you want to say. All right. Well, of course, we could go on and on forever on that question, so I'll make it short and simple. I am a Colorado native, so in the United States, um, born and raised in Colorado. I became a Christian at a fairly young age. Interestingly enough, my my dad had been raised a Christian, and my mom was sort of like a cultural Christian, and when they got married, Faith wasn't a really big part of their marriage. So my early, early years, I, and I don't really remember them, but, but faith wasn't a big part of our life. However, God invited my dad back to church. And so ironically, it was my dad started taking me to church and then started taking my sisters to church and my mom would stay at home. (laughs) So it's kind of the opposite of a lot of stories. And my mom, after several weeks, she said she would just lay in bed crying because like the girls are going to come home talking about Jesus and I just don't want to hear it. Um, and then also it was like, what will all the people at the church think of this wife that won't even come? So my mom started coming. and But through all of that, we became Christian. So it was a vacation Bible school when I was probably six years old that I became a Christian. Um, and just grew in faith from there, involved in youth group, went to a summer camp that was real um, strong in faith and leadership and and building in that, and went off to college and really faith was my own. Like it, it quote unquote stuck. It wasn't just a thing of my childhood. Um, And it was actually at college that it was in my senior year. I lived, I went to a, a public university. So it wasn't a Christian college. I went to the University of Kansas and anyone who has gone to the University of Kansas knows it's a wonderful school and you can't help but say, go Jayhawks. So go Jayhawks. Um, I was an RA, a resident assistant in the dorm. So that was one of the ways I helped pay for college. And also 
I just loved living communally. And I lived in a dorm that had a lot of international students. Uh And so I was an RA of many international students. And it was during, I, I will never forget it. It was during dinner near the beginning of the year, talking to students in the cafeteria, you know, and asking, oh, what's your major? What's your major? And number of my my residents said, well, my major is whatever, engineering, but my my English scores weren't high enough. So I'm having to study ESL this year. I'm having to do ESL. And I was like, what's that? Um, and explaining, well, English is a second language, which was ironic to me. I was an education major. And I'm like, how have I never heard of ESL? Keep in mind, this was in the 80s. Things are different now. Like the ESL world is much more And it was literally in that cafeteria, I can point to where God said, that's what you're going to do. And that was really my call into cross-cultural work, was there in a cafeteria with international students. Okay. So, um, but I thought you were a math teacher or something. Is that? um... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I am. I really am much more of a generalist. I find almost all of life interesting. So I was I was a math teacher. Uh, so my first, my undergraduate degree was in middle and secondary education um, in social studies and mathematics. And so I was able to get a job as a math teacher. And during, during that kind of period, well, actually, it was while I was still at the end of my undergrad, I went to a really large um, M conference, mission conference in the U.S., geared for young adults, just going in knowing, okay, I feel called to go teach English in Asia. I felt called to teach English in Asia, but I was so young. I did not know the difference then between, let's say, Laos and Vietnam or Korea, where we all who have lived in Asia know there are big differences between those countries, but I didn't know any. I just knew you're supposed to go to Asia. So I went to this conference and I really just said, okay, Lord, lead me to a country and lead me to an organization. Like, and then like, that's kind of all the marching orders. Like that's all the clarity I need. And then from there I can kind of take the next steps, but he is so wonderful during that conference. He did lead me to a country, China, mainland China. And he did lead me to an organization, but he also said, you need to make a two-year commitment and you need to get a master's in ESL before you go. Okay. So yes, I was a math teacher. So as I was teaching math, I was also going to graduate school and getting a master's in English as a second language. So I would teach junior hires math by day and study English at night. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, So, um, but then you, you did only commit to two years when you went to China, but I think it was a lot longer than that, wasn't it, in the end? It was. It's funny. I was just talking with some people young in ministry yesterday and saying, I think the Lord is gracious to just sort of give us the next step. Because if too early in our process, he said, oh, you're going to do this, 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 this. You're going to experience this hard time and da, 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 and it's going to go on this many years. I think we'd go, mm, no, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's too overwhelming. But when he said, hey, can you go to China you know, for two years and teach English? in in my name. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And then it did evolve into almost two decades. So <laughs> wow. wow, that's great. Um so you went to Chengdu, right? Yes. And um so 
tell me first of all, what, what, how did you prepare to go? I mean, you went with an organization. How, what kind of um, orientation or cross-cultural training did they give you ahead of time? And did, how much did that help you um, when, it, when you actually got there? That's a great question. Um, well, part of my process of, of exploring organizations was how, like, what do they provide? As I mentioned, I went to that conference and there were two organizations I really was kind of led to. One raised a lot less support and one raised a lot more. And when you're young and you're just trying to d d discern who am I supposed to go with, Lord, kind of what's the difference? And one dollar amount looks much higher than the other. So in talking to both organizations, I loved that they're very supportive of each other and just sort of honest about this is what we as an organization provide. This is what the other one does. And, and neither organization you know, spoke ill of the other, but just the one that provided that the support raising amount was lower did provide less on the ground support. Mm -hmm. And I was young. I had never lived outside of the country. Um, and this was again, back in the day when, uh, you know, there wasn't this technology of communicating so easily. Right. You truly got on an airplane and then, uh, Long distance phone calls. I didn't go with a computer the first time I went to the field. Long distance phone calls were so, so, so expensive. So it was mostly communicating with friends and family via letters. Um, and so I just thought, I'm going to go with the organization that requires slightly raising more money because I, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I really loved the training. We would do, we did a month of pre field training. Mm -hmm. So we went together in, in the States, in the States, since this mm -hmm. is an organization that's based in the States, mm -hmm. went to California and spent a month with all of the other brand new people to the field. And those of you who've done that just know how bonding that time is mm -hmm. <laughs> with all of your new cohorts. And, and to this day, years later, scattered around the globe and doing different things, there's still just that bond. Uh, the organization that I was with focused kind of in training in four core areas. They really valued working together as a team. So we spent time focusing on team building, really valued being excellent educators since we were invited into the country as educators, which that was part of the reason I also chose that organization was because as an educator, I just feel if you've been invited into a country to do some kind of job we want to do, we want to provide that job to the best of our ability, certainly not perfectly, but we want to take it seriously and not in the name of Christ kind of wink, wink. Oh yeah, I'll be an English teacher. Winky, winky. No, if you've asked to be an English teacher, try to be an English teacher. You know, if you're coming in as a doctor, I hope you're trained as a doctor or have some medical training. You know, if you're coming in as a physiotherapist that you have had some physiotherapy training. Mm. Um, so we focused on the professional area. We also then focused on culture training, since we were going to be living and teaching in China, understanding Chinese culture. And then the final area was um, so the ministry part, sharing of faith and understanding the more of that, that side, that piece of the puzzle. So we had a comprehensive training that it's certainly different than what would be provided today because of technology and just the ways we moved to being able to do more of the training in country. And that I think obviously is better to be trained in the country that you're getting trained in instead of sitting in, you know, London or California talking about another culture. But you, 
it's also wonderful to see how the Lord plays the hand you're dealt. So if what you're able to do is do training in California, talking about China, he uses it to prepare you. If you're able to be on the ground, he uses it to prepare you. Right. So when you got there, did you have much in the way of culture shock or did you kind of adjust, take to it like a duck to water? I always feel a bit guilty. I took to it like a duck to water. I just, <laughs> I know because so many people, it's like it's supposed to be so hard and so miserable. And it certainly was an adjustment. I mean, it was an adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, the living conditions were rather different. When you you go to, it was, I think, as, as a single person, it's very odd. It's odd for all of us. But I went from being known, have been in a community, to now I'm with one other teammate who I've now known like a whole month. And then as the, the weeks are going by, I've now known you two months, three months, that you really are restarting, building a whole community and support system in person. Mm. Um, and I think when marrieds come or families come, they at least have one other built-in person who knew them before, but as a single person, you're like, Oh, nobody knew me before. Um, however, I just, I, I, my, I had a wonderful teammate and I think that also can make a big difference. Like, do you click and get along with your teammates, with your coworkers? Um, she was and is a fantastic person. And I just really, I loved I loved living in Chengdu. I loved working with adult students and living um, in the spicy part of China. I loved it. Very spicy. <laughs> yes, yes. I learned and I learned to eat very spicy food. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and then the teaching side, um, you, I was just listening to your audio book earlier um, and it sounds like you, you built really good relationships. Um, with with the, stu the students that you were teaching, um, I did. Yeah, yeah. My original students, um, I ended up over the years teaching every age level at, in China. But I started off teaching at a provincial um, education school, so my students were English teachers. They'd come in from the countryside. They'd come in from the province for an additional sort of like two year um, degree teaching degree. Most of them had what would be like the equivalent of a two-year associate's degree. And this was an opportunity to do another two years, almost then like a bachelor's degree. Um, they were absolutely the dearest people. Mm. And yeah. You still keep in touch with any of them? Well, unfortunately, a little bit, but this was very pre, I've gone through, I've got bags of mail, like the handwritten notes and the so it was before technology. Beepers were just coming out um, in my latter years in Chengdu. I know, I know. So <laughs> right. but just last year, one of my former students did pass through Denver, and it was so wonderful to get to see her and meet her husband and meet their children. Uh -huh. um, and we just spent an hour reminiscing. It was wonderful. Right. So um, you speak a lot about um, the importance of writing home. I mean, you obviously are a writer. So tell us, first of all, about the books that you've written and um, then uh, tell us about the importance of writing good letters because you definitely write good letters. <laughs> well, the humorous thing, Christine, is I never thought of myself as a writer. I thought of myself as like a math teacher. I thought of myself as an English teacher. 
I did not think of myself as a writer, but I also thought of myself as accountable to my supporters. I was on full-time support, um, sent with an agency, raising support to help fund the work that I was doing. And it never occurred to me that you wouldn't write newsletters, that you wouldn't write letters home. If you're asking people to pray for you, (laughs) to support you, to be a partner in the ministry, I viewed newsletter writing as part of my job. As If you are called to do this, you are called to communicate. I think it did help that I had had, quote unquote, a normal job. Not that I, I you know what I'm trying to say. Teaching mm-hmm. at a public school, I had a department head and I had a principal. It would never have flown to have said, I just don't really want to factor in my quarter grades. I didn't want to give any quizzes. I don't like giving quizzes. So there are no grades. So I'm just not going to do that. They would have looked at me like, well, you have two choices. You either like, this is what a math teacher does. You either give quizzes and hand out grades or you quit. Like, (laughs) like, this is part of the job. Um, And so I went into it with this mindset that I would write once a month, that that was what our organization said, write once a month. So I was like, okay, write once a month. And I will never forget when I, we, we would have an annual meeting where we would all come together from our different locations in our different countries and coming into my first annual meeting, meeting someone in their second year. And she said to me, oh, you are so lucky you're in your first year because by the second year, you're going to run out of things to say in your newsletters, which I was just like, are you kidding me? We're living this most glorious adventure, like in God's kingdom. Like, how can you run out of things to say? But it made me a little anxious or it made me go, oh, okay, this isn't a given. This is something to be cultivated and to continue looking at. Um, And also then when I was around a lot of my colleagues, I was so shocked how many did not like writing newsletters, like viewed it as a total chore. And then honestly could go months and months and like maybe write one every five months, Mm -hmm. which was very stunning to me because I was like, well, this is part of our job. Like You would not just do this. And I think it turns out writing is like almost any other skill you get better at a skill by doing it, not by talking about like, how does someone become better at riding a bike? You don't watch 50,000 videos on YouTube about bike riding. At a certain point, you got to sit your fanny on the seat and start (laughs) practice riding. How do you get better at cooking? How do you get better at speaking Chinese? How do you get better at writing newsletters? Mm -hmm. And I just thought, this is a newsletter. You know, it's not a national tome. Don't make it too big. Most people are going to read it and then throw it away um, or read it and put it in a drawer. They are not going to be massively. So I think it helped that I lowered the bar for myself. Mm -hmm. And by just putting, putting them out regularly, it also lowered the bar because some people would wait five months and then they're like, how do I explain the last five months? And it was too big, too heavy. Whereas like every, once a month, you're just like, hey, this is kind of what happened this month. This is what I did. This is what the Lord did. And people just want to hear about your life. I think we put this pressure that, well, people want to hear about all of the miraculous ministry stuff that's going on. And they do want to know 
obviously that you're, you know, taking your faith seriously, but I think also they are for you and that is a given. So if you just show up and share a little bit, Hey, this is what I did this month, or this is what, this is what ministry looks like here. I think I have realized a lot of people view instead of a newsletter, view it as a news report. Like, Oh, I'm having to report. I'm having to justify what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. That is coming from such a different energy than a newsletter. This is a letter between friends, partners, partners, people who like they're on my team. I'm not having to justify what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And maybe yeah, you have an annual report to sort of say, yeah, maybe I did like these many meetings or whatever it is your ministry is. But there's such freedom for me in thinking this is a news letter, not a news report. I am just sharing my life. I'm not justifying what I have done. So, however, it turns out that did turn me into a writer, Christine. Yes. <laughs> it did turn me into a writer. And even those um, newsletters turned into a book. Um, I know, they turned into a book. Just for information, this is, it's a book called Love Amy, which is also available on Audible, Audible, Audible. And, yes. um, as an audiobook, and it's, it's it's well worth reading. It's very if um, you're on uh, YouTuber, yeah. Here's the cover, Love Amy, and it is. So this is kind of my writing journey. My very first book was, as you mentioned, it, Christine, Looming Transitions. So it's helping people start and finish well in cross cultural service. Mm -hmm. So when I set out to write that book, then I was like, oh, now I'm a writer. Even though I'd been writing newsletters at that point for probably. 15 letters and had probably written over 250,000 words, oh, even more, about, like written and written and written. But I never thought of myself as a writer. I never thought of myself as a writer. However, mentally, oh, a book is a real writer. So I started studying the craft and reading about it. And there were just little tidbits about writing that I thought... Well, if anyone would have told me this, like, I'm not dumb, but I didn't think of myself as a writer. So why would I go read a book about being a writer? That's what, you know, Stephen King or Philip Yancey or these kind of famous authors do. That's, I'm just writing newsletters back to friends and family and supporters. Um, and then because of Looming Transitions, I kind of became known as the transition lady, which I don't mind being known for, for this book. But I thought, wait, when did I become the transition person? I lived on the field for 20 years. I think of myself as the staying on the field person, not on the helping people leave the field person. Mm -hmm. um, and that was then when I had the idea to share Love Amy, to write Love Amy, because I wanted people to just see what is it like to live on the field a normal life on the field, month after month, that life just kind of unfolds. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted people to go, oh, writing newsletters, if if that's what she did, like, I could do that. It's, it's just kind of like a normal book. And then my third book is called Enjoying Newsletters. So I took everything I learned about writing, yeah. and I packaged it for people like us who write newsletters, who might not think of themselves as a writer, but we are writing and this is a craft. There are skills. Mm -hmm. And as I said, if anyone would have told me them, I could have done them. I just didn't know this little thing about um, sentence construction. And so this is totally packaged for people who write newsletters 
uh, and might not think of them. Probably. Yeah, yeah. And, and personally, people who've read this book have said, wow, it's a very encouraging book. Like now it makes me want to write oh, newsletters. Yeah. It makes me now excited to write newsletters, which I was like, that's what I want people to do. Enjoy newsletter writing. Enjoy connecting mm-hmm. with. And then just briefly, since you ask about books, then my next book is called Getting Started. It's for people in their first year of cross-cultural service. So it's called Getting Started, mm-hmm. Making the Most of Your First Year in Cross-Cultural Service. And my most recent book is called Connected. Starting your overseas life spiritually fed. Um, And it's for those first, especially nine months adjusting to the field. How do you stay connected to God when you are in a new location, you are with new colleagues, you are just in a slightly different environment. Mm -hmm. Um, You probably come out of a more spiritually stable environment, meaning you were in a church, you were in a small group Bible study, you were in, you had like the spiritual kind of support and and you will get that on the field. You will get to where you have your routines and people you were studying the word with and people you were worshiping together. But that first few months, nine months, can kind of be that weird gray where you're just not anchored. So how do you stay anchored in God until those other pieces are a bit more solid in uh, your life? Great. Right. I hadn't heard about that one. But that's okay. good. Great. But um, so one thing I was just listening to on the Audible book, is um, your experience of near death, mm-hmm. <laughs> being in a coma. Uh, that must have um, really rocked you um, the, uh, and, and your family too, and your friends, everybody who yes. went in fact, your students too, who yes. went through it with you. So tell us about that. Well, what was interesting um, is it was in my second year, so I was still relatively um, new to the field. And I don't think it had occurred to any of us that you could die doing cross-cultural work. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, at least for myself, my thought was, oh, that was from previous generations. Like that was something previous generations faced. Mm-hmm. Not, not my generation, not now in you know, a time when medical advances are so far. And I was also young. I was in my 20s. So what bad things medically happened to 20-year-olds? I was totally naive. But I'm just saying like this was my mindset. Um, Ironically, I will say for me, so what I had, everyone, was bacterial meningitis. And so what bacterial bacterial meningitis is, uh, briefly, it's the layer around your brain is called the meningi layer, and that becomes infected. So obviously, with an infection, what happens is swelling. Well, since it's around your brain, between your skull and your brain, the skull isn't giving. So it really, it just, it's, a squeezing of your brain. And, and if you don't get treatment, it squeezes until you die. Um, so I did go into fairly early um, a coma. And, th- and that whole experience was just wild, going to the hospital with my teammate and school officials. And by that point, because of where it was squeezing on my brain, I had the most crushing headache. I, it was like my brain was in a vice grip and it just kept getting tighter and tighter. And I was um, vomiting fairly regularly, except then there's nothing to vomit. So in those days in China, there were spittoons everywhere because there was just lots of spitting. Um, and, and, and this was where I truly was out of my mind. I'm like grabbing the spittoon off of the ground, holding it up disgusting everybody that I'm holding it, which I was like, I don't even care. Um, 
Long story short, they gave me an injection. I don't know what it was for. Put me on a gurney and wheeling me outside because the emergency ward was just kind of this little hallway out into the streets of Chengdu to go into another part of the hospital. And I have my contacts in and I'm popping my contacts out, putting them in my teammate's hand. And that's the last I recall. And I went into a coma. I started seizing very, very badly. So badly, they weren't able to test until much later. Because how you test for bacterial meningitis is a spinal tap. But if you're seizing, you cannot get a spinal tap. Um, So they had little ropes around my wrists and my ankles and tied me to the bed. So when I did come up, wake up and become aware quite a few days later, I had scabs around my wrist because I seized so hard against the ropes. Um, I will say for me, I went into a coma. And so it wasn't that bad for me. Now, as you mentioned, Christine, for my teammate, for people in the organization, for my family members, it was awful. It was awful. Um, uh, The Lord, though, is gracious because my parents had happened to visit two months before and they realized they could not function in China. They, they needed people who could feed them, do interpretation, take them around. Um, and so they did not come to China, which I think was very hard for them because a lot of people were like, well, don't you care for Amy? Like, why aren't you getting on a plane? If my child was dying, I would be getting on a plane right away. And you all know in cross-cultural work, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is actually stay away Mm. so that the person like just we understand you don't just simply go from one country to another often if you are new to that country someone's got to take care of you and so they were like if we go there we then become a distraction and we want all of the focus to be on amy Mm. um they did they were able to then when i came out um i had to hilariously and all of you know, listening to this will find this slightly humorous. I never lost my ability to speak, but I had to relearn almost everything else. (laughs) So so I had to learn walking again. My brain was so muddled. um, Like things, you don't realize what goes into just simply dressing yourself. I had to learn to dress myself. I, I, the brain just got so muddled. It literally was like, okay, what, when someone gets dressed, what do they do? They put on underwear, they have a shirt, they, you know, so I would have to think through each individual piece, go get it. So I'd learned writing again. Ironically, I had to learn writing again, walking. Um, my depth perception was atrocious. So like having dishes in front of you, I would like miss and hit the table. And um, so. But I did learn almost everything back. <laughs> wow, that must have been, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, it was very touching because we were actually, your, your parents then met you in Hong Kong. Is that right? They came when you were. They you did. Were they were able to, when I was medevaced out to Hong Kong. Yeah. So, so we were in the reverse situation when we were on the field and our eldest daughter was nearly killed in a car crash. Oh. And um, so we, we did the same thing. We waited till we knew she was yeah. out of danger before we flew back. Um, but so we had to rely on other people to sort of be there um, until we could actually make it. But I mean, that, that really touched me when you were 
talking about their experience of it as well. Yeah. Well, and that's where I do realize, yeah, I mentioned earlier with supporters, we really do go to the field in a community with friends and family and supporters. Um, and it, it, it moved all of them very, I think we, it, we did realize, oh, it's not a given, bad things aren't going to happen. Mm. And, it's, and that there is a cost to the call yeah. of living, living far from each other, that there are going to be things that we can't physically be present for each other in yeah and well, that's, say, that's the that's the phone call that every parent dreads to get you know yes or yes someone dreads to get but um yeah, yeah so that must have been quite clearing the other thing that touched me was what you were saying about the students how they actually came into the hospital and were seeing everything and then the the fact that you were able to give a very clear testimony but actually yeah. god had healed you it wasn't just yeah. that you got over it because it could have been a very different outcome. Oh, it could have been. The interesting thing, and I think this is a great lesson for all of us in cross-cultural work, is I thought that was going to be the takeaway. Look at this great thing God has done. And it was a great thing. And it was miraculous. That was not, for the most part, their takeaway. Their takeaway was, it's because you're a Westerner and you've got good medicine. Of course you lived. Mm-hmm. Whereas for my supporters, it God totally used it in my supporters' lives. And I had to say, as a as I had to personally wrestle through, God, I was willing to go through that for my Chinese. Like I was willing to go for that for them. I'm willing to die for you and to experience pain if you use it the way I want you to use it. Then when the, the students were like, ho hum, like I, I was very surprised at their reaction because I thought it was going to be this big. Mm. But it it was used so much in my supporters' lives. And I think God had to say, Amy, are you willing to let me use things in your life the way I want to use them, not the way you want me to use them? You wanted it to be for your students. I used it in the life of your supporters who you might not think needed it. You might have thought, oh, they do, for the most part, live in America and are strong Christians and this, that, and the other. And but you don't get to choose how I use your life. And I was like, oh. So that was actually one of the key behind the scenes lessons for me going through that experience, that the Lord is going to use things the way he wants, not necessarily always the way I want him to use them. Mm -hmm. That's a very good lesson. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but how did, how else did China as a nation and her people and what happened to you there impact you? Oh. Your faith and as an influencer of others. I think it influenced me in so many ways. Like that question is so rich and beautiful. In many ways, just starting at the base, it showed me all people are people. All people are beautiful, wonderful children of God. And mm-hmm. it helped me to say in this world, we do have like country lines and nationalities And yet somehow in China, sorry, somehow in heaven, I know we're going to have varieties. We know that there's going to be every tongue and tribe and nation at the foot of the lamb, but there's not going to be the divisiveness of cultures somehow. There's going to be the ways we can be different without it being so divisive or so used against each other. It also really, as many of you who've lived cross-culturally, 
it opened me up to a whole different way of looking at things and thinking about things. It's ironic. I mentioned yesterday, I was doing some training with people young in ministry, and we were talking about finances and raising support and investing in retirement and just some of the financial pieces. Well, the conversation on one level was so awkward because in general, Westerners do not discuss finances so publicly or so openly. But after having lived in China, where that's very culturally different in China, um, just to ask, oh, how much did you pay for that? How much did you pay for that? How much does your trip cost? How much is your monthly salary? You get in any taxi cab and people want to know. And it's just a very public discussion of who, ha- who has this salary? Who paid that? How much did that cost? How much are you? So um, I think one of the benefits of living cross-culturally is as you do it longer, you can get better at that code switching to, okay, in this context, we don't talk about money. In this context, we do. And so even yesterday with them, I was like, people, we've got to be a little bit more Chinese. Come on. Like none of you have lived in China, but we've got to be a little bit more Chinese. Let's have a frank discussion about money. And so it has formed me of helping to think through not just the lens I was handed being raised in America. It's helped me to be more um, able to code switch. And it's just pointed out how much more I have to learn. You know, <laughs> I think if you live only in one culture, one of the fall- one of the temptations is to think, okay, I've got life figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope it continues to cultivate a humility in me that there's a lot I don't know, a lot I don't understand, and a lot to keep learning. So then there's also just that excitement that even though, you know, I am now of a certain age, and you might think I know some things, there's so much more to learn. There's so much more to learn. And to keep growing, it it has kept me alive, quote unquote, in the game of life. That reminds me of a blog that you've also written which is, um, what is it about the messy middle? The messy middle, yes. Where grace and truth reside, and it is the messy middle. It's the messy middle, yep. Um, So then China as a nation impacted you, but how about the whole cross-cultural journey? And then how did that, how were you impacted when you returned back to the States? Re-entry, was that a major thing for you? Oh, yes. We could just leave the answer there. Was it a big... Yes. Um, (laughs) The thing is, everyone's story is unique. And so, um, and yet there's also universals. I think for my case, um, I had not envisioned that I would be back in the States. I truly thought when I moved to China, and as I said, I loved it. I loved my life there. I loved the culture. I loved my apartment. I loved doing life in China. Um, And so I did not envision that that would come to an end. And and I certainly did not envision in my mid-40s, because I had thrown my lot in with a life overseas, a life on the field in my 20s. And given my 20s, 30s, 40s, so really my formative years in adulthood had been very informed and formed by life on the field. Mm-hmm. I didn't particularly want to live back in the U S um, and yet the Lord is also gracious. I think for those of us who love where we have been, the only way we're going to leave is through pain. 
I, I don't know why that is. I don't know. And so the pain can be lots of different forms. Maybe it's just like this uneasiness in your soul. Like you're just sensing, I want a change. I want something that before you were so settled, there's just some unsettledness in your soul. Maybe something um, dramatic, like you have a child that has a very serious accident and you now need to go and help care for that child. Maybe you've got aging parents that somehow some sort of painfulness enters your story that's painful enough, it makes you willing to change. It makes you willing to go through all of the yuck of leaving a place you love, leaving people you love, to then also have to go and rebuild a new life. And golly, it's it at least for me, it was a lot more fun rebuilding a new life in China. There was an element of excitement and freshness. And it's so cool. I'm learning all these new things. It was not as exciting to move back to the States where I'm like, nope, I know this language. I know this culture. Except the irony is when you repatriate after a number of years, I looked like a middle-aged person but culturally, I was an early 20s person. I knew how to do things in Asia. I knew how to do things overseas. I can navigate customs like a champ. I did not know how to get my car serviced. You know, I did not know the questions to ask. And so I think that was also the painfulness of you're relearning. You're, you're having to relearn things. Um, and there is just that for everyone... I think the numbers are going to be different. I had heard, oh, after a year, you'll be more settled. And I don't think that's untrue, but I have to say, I found it took me three years. And so for someone who is kind of going through that repatriating cycle, to just be open to it's going to take the time it's going to take, and that's okay. And some people do land, and after a year, they are, just for them, that's the time it took them. Others, it can take two years, three years. Um, I'm going to um, take that piece of advice for us because we've yet to make that final transition back. Um, and we're, we're certainly up there in age, <laughs> in our 70s. So um, that's going to be a decision for next year or next couple yeah. of years or whatever. Yeah. And so the sort of final return, we're still bracing ourselves to make yeah. that. Yeah. Go through all the what they talk about building the raft and you know having yeah. good closure and all that kind of stuff. So it's really helpful to talk about and the fact that it's not a kind of given that everybody will go through it at the same rate. Yeah, it's helpful to hear. Hmm. Um, but I mean, you did then fully settle back, found uh, old friends, new friends. Did you go back to the same place where you came from originally, or? I did. I I very consciously chose to move back to Colorado. My parents lived here. One of my sisters lived here. Um, and I had a supporting church here. Um, it's ironic because after I did move back, you know, people like, hey, come take this job in Indiana or, you know, in different state. And I have just consciously, after living apart for so long, Mm. Um, and I think those of us who have lived cross-culturally, you know how important relationships are um, and how important. And I thought, I don't need to build a whole community in Indiana when I don't know anybody else there just for a job. I prioritized relationship 
over <laughs> employment. <laughs> that's wise. That's wise. Because, yeah. I mean, the community aspect is... Yes. Um, yeah. I think we feel that's going to be the biggest thing for us. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, since your return, you've started or helped to start not one, but two organizations dedicated to the support of cross-cultural workers. Can you tell us a bit about those? Sure. Um, those of you who have heard of Velvet Ashes, that was the first organization that with two other colleagues um, from the organization that I'd worked with in China helped start. And Velvet Ashes was really cutting edge. Right now, in this time in the world, technology is fairly common and it doesn't seem so cutting edge. But this was in 2013 and, and we were kind of on the front end of how do you use technology? We just knew there was this untapped resource of technology that could be used to connect and enhance and support cross-cultural workers. And so with great naivete, once again, the Lord is gracious. Hey, can you start a blog for women serving cross-culturally? Sure. That is not a big, <laughs> that's not a huge ask. Um, but then it turned into being really a community for women serving cross-culturally and then providing different pieces that a community would provide. So a book group where you can meet and discuss books, connection groups where people can be in a small group connection and connect for eight or 10 weeks in the fall and in the spring, an online retreat that will come to you. We were, again, the, we had this idea, let's record the elements of a retreat, a speaker, um, testimonies, these different things. And then people can download them wherever they are around the world. Hearing it now, it is like, oh, duh, of course, that is a great idea. At that time, when we would pitch it to some people, it literally was like the, I went over their head or you get that day's look and it was like, ah, okay, sweetie, that's a nice idea. Um, you know, when you kind of get the look and people are like, okay, whatever. But we were just like, no, we, we're going to forge ahead. We're going to try this. So actually our very first year, the retreat was free because it was this unproven concept. Nobody knew, wait, you do a virtual retreat that I can just watch things on my computer. That doesn't sound like a retreat. Um, so we were like, okay, we're going to have it be free. So people like just try it for free. We had 722 people in 92 countries that first year. And that was where we were like, okay, God is on to something here. And technology really can be used mm. to bring people together and to bring people closer to God, to create experiences where they can connect with themselves and with God. And even then, like through a Facebook group, chatting with others who are going through the same experience. Mm. Well, I can testify to that. Um, I was in in quarantine when I came back from um, from the UK and had mm. to be on my own in, in this apartment for two weeks without exiting the door or anything. And so I did I did the, the retreat that you put on this year. And um, Hineni, I, it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. It really is amazing. Um, and so then after five years, that was up and running. And one of the other co-founders, Danielle, um, was staying and it was just time for me to go launch and do something new. I'm really good at getting things kind of up and started 
Mm-hmm. And then as you've noticed, oh, we, we thought you were a math teacher. Yes, I was for a little while. Oh, we thought you taught English. Well, yes, I did for a little while. Oh, we thought you were in charge of member care. Oh, yes. Oh, we thought, yes. So Velvet Ashes is running new executive director as of, I think, two years ago, Denise Beck. Wonderful, wonderful team. Right. Um, it is up and running. In my heart, I view it like it's an adult child. I love Velvet Ashes and it is up and running and in wonderful hands and doing wonderful, great work. And I can just cheerlead it from afar as a proud, um, as a proud parent of that organization and just to see. And I think that was wonderful to, to show technology can be used and to begin to help to connect this whole global world mm-hmm. that to a small extent, it doesn't matter if you're living in Russia or Taiwan, or Brazil, there are certain elements that are similar of cross-cultural life Mm. and of when you don't live in your quote-unquote passport country. um, And there's a point of connection there. Honestly, when we started Velvet Ashes, we thought it would grow to the point that it would sort of be like Velvet Ashes Europe. Velvet Ashes Africa, Velvet Ashes Asia, you know, so people could really connect with others in their region because we were like, oh, Africa is not the same as Europe. Um, But we were wrong. There is this global connection where people are, yeah, okay, there are certain unique parts to wherever it is God has called me, but there's far more universal to this cross-cultural life. Um, And so that was one surprise. So then two years ago, the second organization I founded is called Global Trellis. And it's based on the idea that just like a trellis in a garden just stands at the back and helps the plant grow Mm. um, to its full potential. Just noticed that there are so many wonderful resources for when someone moves to the field. You asked earlier, Christine, about the training I received. And there's a lot of fantastic training for when people move to the field. Um, And a lot of organizations have the value of wanting to continue to train and develop their people. But often if there's a piece that sort of gets dropped or like, oh, we'll get to that next month, or that tends to be the piece that slightly gets pushed to the side. And so Global Trellis helps both individuals and organizations to keep growing and developing where they are. Mm. Um, We've got a whole team of specialists because... Also, I find left on our own, we're all drawn to something more than something else. So maybe some people are really drawn to the cultural aspect and totally learn all about their culture, but neglect thinking about their finances and neglect thinking about investing in retirement. Or maybe someone is so um, invested, understandably, in their TCKs, in raising their their children and being really good parents, that they don't factor in taking care of their own soul. And I just think, again, the Lord has called us to have a lot of pieces in play at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with our team of specialists, once a quarter, they will write about TCK or about grief, things about your soul to just keep all of us going, oh, that's right. Okay. I just need to think a little bit about that. I just need to think a little bit about that. So that's Mm -hmm. what Global Trellis is for the ongoing growth and development of cross-cultural workers. That's lovely. And and I love your strap line, Global Trellis develops cross-cultural workers so they flourish and grow. 
Uh, that word flourish means a lot to me. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you know, it's not just survival. It's not just making it through. It's, you know, thriving. Yeah. So that's great. And that's very much on our heart too. So um, you've very kindly agreed to partner with us at Field Partner. And so I'd love to just talk about what that might look like in terms of um, the resources that are on your site, people coming to ours as a portal to go to other sites. How would they find yours and and the you, workshops and courses that you are putting on and other things that you have available? But just talk us through that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just love the idea of partnering. And I think that is so biblical. And I think it's an area maybe we in cross-cultural work haven't always done the best. And part of it is people sometimes live in a place that really security, like they need to be very careful about what they are doing. Mm -hmm. um, the downside of needing to be careful and needing to be secure is we can build these silos and not mm -hmm. know how to work together and not know how to partner. Um, and so I think there are organizations like a field partnership, like Global Trellis, that can be not just called to one place, but called to many and help build those bridges. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think partnering is so needed because also no one organization is going to be everything or be able to provide everything. It's we don't need to like, re keep reinventing the wheel either. I mean, you know, if, if somebody's got a good resource, why would I go right. way to do the same, duplicate it? Just right. Let's find ways to share and to encourage each other and to come totally from the mindset of, there's a verse in Psalms, there's a phrase in a verse in Psalms, and I'm sorry, I don't remember it exactly, but the phrase is, the river of God has plenty of water. Mm. And I love that. The river of God has plenty of water. So I can not freak out like, oh, if another organization is doing something, mm. that's great. The river of God has plenty of water. So for partnering with field partners, um, if not, I think it starts, first of all, just from a basis of support and friendship and knowing if I hear of something I think would be great for field partners telling you about it. And if you hear about something that'd be great for Global Trellis, telling me about it. And so it comes first and foremost from just a foundation of a friendship between us, between talking to each other, seeing your smiling face, you see my smiling face. Um, and so it, it's based out of relationship. It's based out of mutual support and mutual commitment to the same thing. We're, af we're after the same thing. So I, I think if that is the basis then there's just so much potential. So with partnering, um, one of the ways is with workshops, giving a reduced rate to field partner to help make resources accessible to people who come with field partner, um, letting you know about courses that we've got, letting you know about challenges um, and working together to, to support that. Uh, on Global Trellis, we have a resource list and I've added field partnership to our list of resources. Um, and you know, just behind the scenes, if I'm like, oh, Christine needs to know this person or that person, it's just networking and supporting each other. Thanks for already doing that. that yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, that's super, thank you very much, Amy. Um, it's been such a joy to chat and you've given us much food for thought um, on all sorts of, um, well, all the things that we discussed, I think, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll come back to as we watch this interview and think about think about it. 
So anyway, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And if you've enjoyed this interview, please spread the word on social media or by sending it to a friend. And why not go across both to Global Trellis and to Field Partner to see what else is on offer. Bye-bye for now and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Field Partner. You can watch or listen to more interviews by subscribing to this channel, our YouTube channel, or our Facebook page. For free cross-cultural mission courses, blogs, sermons, and other resources, visit our website, fieldpartner.org.